I love these online opportunities, but they're not quite the same as being together face to face. But we long for uh, that opportunity, hopefully sooner rather than than later. But it is good to see everybody and to to be able to unite our our hearts and souls in praise to our heavenly Father. I'd like to talk this morning briefly about life after death, the resurrection of an idea, life after death. We have glimpses of the concept in the Bible in the Old Testament. This is long before Jesus had come, and yet you, you have little inklings that there would be life beyond the grave, even prior to Jesus coming. For example, Job asked the question, if a man dies, shall he live again? Obviously, many people in the Old Testament period were wondering about that. They didn't have quite the certainty that we have. Jesus had not come yet, but they certainly wondered. You have little phrases in the Old Testament, such as that found in several of the patriarchal narratives in Genesis, that a patriarch such as Abraham was gathered to his people. That implies a continuation of existence in some way, shape, or form beyond the grave. This is when Abraham died. You have Ecclesiastes 12, verse 7, which says, And the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. There's a statement made in Daniel 12, although we can debate the exact context here, whether it refers to a literal resurrection or something else, but certainly the hints are there. The seeds of resurrection are, are certainly here. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt, Daniel 12, verse 2. And then you have the statement that uh, Jesus cites in the Gospels, Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, in which God is speaking to Moses from the burning bush. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. If Moses is saying this to Moses hundreds of years later, after the earthly existence of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And as Jesus points out, he is the God of the living, not the God of the dead, then there must be some continuation or some resurrection of the dead, life after, after death. In contrast to these glimmers of hope that we see in the Old Testament, there were widespread uh, moments of despair in the Gentile world. From the patriarchal age onward, down through history, you have hopelessness among Gentiles at large. I have a, a book of Greek and Latin epitaphs from gravestones in the ancient world. It's kind of a morbid book in more ways than one, but it reminds me of Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if the dead are not raised, then there's hopelessness and despair uh, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You have a lot of that kind of thing in these epitaphs on gravestones. For 
for instance, one of them says, we shall never again see you alive. That's a comforting thought to put on a gravestone. There is nothing left or nothing awakens the dead except to afflict the souls of, uh, uh, I, I can't even read this because there's a, a block in my, uh, on my PowerPoint here on the screen, but nothing else remains, bereaved forever. All of which reminds us of Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, but we do not want you to be asleep we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. No hope. Uh, prior to their conversion, Paul describes the Ephesians as hopeless, Christless, stateless, and godless in Ephesians 2, 12, and, and 13, and so on. You may not grieve as others who have no hope. In fact, pagans ridiculed Christians over the concept of the resurrection of the dead. In uh, Acts 17 and verse 32, as Paul preaches in Athens, Greece, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. This was a novel concept as far as they were concerned. Paul says to Festus, Agrippa, and Gentile dignitaries in Acts 26, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? In Acts 25, 19, rather they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion, about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. That's what Festus tells King Agrippa in anticipation of Paul's defense of Acts 26. This was a novel concept to him about a certain Jesus who was dead, Paul asserted to be alive. It's still an issue. Steve Jobs, founder of Apple before he died, said, sometimes I'm 50-50 on whether there's a God. It's the great mystery we never quite know. But I like to believe there's an afterlife. I like to believe the accumulated wisdom doesn't just disappear when you die, but somehow it endures but maybe it's just like an on-off switch and click and you're gone. Maybe that's why I didn't like putting on-off switches on Apple devices. He wanted to be certain, but, but wasn't. And uh, there are a lot of people like him in this wicked world. The difference maker, of course, was Jesus. We read in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Finally, death has been abolished and life and immortality have been brought to life, light through the gospel. And Philippians 3, 20 and 21, read a moment ago by, by Samuel, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. Again, Jesus is the difference maker, and his resurrection from the dead is the proof. 
There will be naysayers. Atheist Richard Dawkins said accounts of Jesus' resurrection and ascension are about as well documented as Jack and the Beanstalk. I have a higher view of all of that than Richard Dawkins does. Uh, in fact, uh, there are two cardinal facts on which we base our hope two lines of evidence, if you will, that both point to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One is the empty tomb. The other are the post-resurrection appearances. As Donald Gray Barnhouse has said, the angel rolled away the stone from Jesus' tomb, not to let the living Lord out, but to let the unconvinced outsiders in. Best explanation for the empty tomb is that given by the angel to the, the women. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Matthew 28 and verse 6. And so you consider the emptiness of the tomb in spite of maximum security precautions. Something extraordinary happened. Jesus had predicted his own resurrection in advance, so an armed guard was placed outside the tomb. Huge rolling stone was placed over the mouth of the rock hewn cave. The tomb was then sealed, presumably with the official seal of the Roman authorities. And yet on the third day, the body was missing and the tomb was empty. The risen Lord then began to appear over a period of, of 40 days to chosen eyewitnesses. And then Christianity began in Jerusalem, the very city where it had all transpired. The Jewish opposition did not deny the emptiness of the tomb. In fact, the first alternative explanation is that the disciples came by night and stole the body, Matthew 28, 11 through 15. That's a rather weak attempt to deny the truth, but one thing it does do for certain is it, it confirms the emptiness of the tomb. And so a few days later at Pentecost, the silence of the Jewish authorities was as loud as the voice of Peter and the uh, other apostles. The claim of an empty tomb went unchallenged simply because it was common knowledge. It was a few minutes away from where Peter and the other apostles were preaching, and uh, everybody in and around the vicinity of Jerusalem knew that the tomb was empty. But there were also these post-resurrection appearances. I count at least 11 of them, of Jesus to various people, from Mary Magdalene to various uh, people down to Paul. They were not hysterical fanatics. They were chosen eyewitnesses, men and women of impeccable honesty, integrity, and a reputation for the highest ethical standards. Men and women who were willing to be executed by their persecutors rather than deny the truth. Uh, we have, for example, in Luke chapter 24, that uh, begins in verse 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them said to them, peace be to you. And they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms 
must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and repent or forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I think my favorite post-resurrection appearance is to so-called doubting Thomas. There are many favorites, but this has got to be way up there. In John, the 20th chapter, beginning with verse 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with him when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand, place it into my, my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. John adds this postscript. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ serves a purpose, not that he alone should live, but that we should live through him. We have the empty tomb. We have the post-resurrection appearances. And what it means to us is so that he lives, that we might live as well. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul writes in verses 12 through 19, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Or if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, you, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. We have confidence of life after death, and Paul draws a correlation here between the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection from the dead. If Jesus has not arisen from the dead, then number one, our preaching is in vain. 
We are doing all this and it's empty. It's of no avail. Your faith also is in vain. Your faith is worthless. It's, it's futile to believe something that is false at the very core. If Christ has not been raised, then we are false witnesses. We are testifying to a lie. If Christ has not been raised, you are still in your sins. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead vindicates the reason for his death, the reason for shedding of his blood. If Jesus Christ has not arisen from the dead, then those who have fallen asleep in Jesus have perished. They have died never to arise again through their hope in Jesus. And if he has not arisen from the dead, then we are of all men most to be pitied. There's no, there's no glory in believing a lie about whether Jesus has arisen from the dead. Many, many other passages that uh, testify to the truthfulness of all this and the correlation between Jesus' death and our death. When the apostle Peter was sent to the household of Cornelius, he speaks of the resurrection of Christ and the fact that he and others are eyewitnesses of a risen Lord. He says in Acts 10, verse 38, beginning, and how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So we have hope through Jesus, that he not only died for our sins, that he has arisen from the dead so that we could follow him through the barrier of death safely on the other side and rise again with him. Romans chapter six and verse eight says, now we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Romans chapter eight, in verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised up Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So Jesus is the first of many. We have confidence because we have come into him in a representation of sorts that prefigures our own physical resurrection from the dead by our spiritual death, burial, and resurrection that occurs at baptism in a reenactment of what he has already done. In Romans chapter 6, Romans chapter 6, beginning with verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so we have a symbolic connection between what Jesus did and what we do. He died, was buried, and then arose. We die to sin, are buried in the waters of baptism, and we rise to walk in newness of life, both as a representation of what he has already undergone and as a prefiguring of what will happen in the after a while as we die ourselves, are buried, as it were, and rise to walk not only in newness of spiritual life, but rise to live forever and ever in the after a while. The Apostle Paul affirms are, are four things that happen when we are baptized into Christ. First of all, we are baptized into someone. We are baptized into Christ. That spells relationship. We are baptized into his death. That underscores the benefits. As we studied this morning in class, all spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing, in the heavenly places that is found in only in Christ. We're baptized into those blessings. We're buried with Christ through baptism into death. Christ died and we die. And then our old sinful self is buried away just as his body was placed into a tomb. The old life ends. And just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too walk in newness of life. Our new life begins there, and we are conferred with the Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our own resurrection in the after a while, the resurrection of the body. We have spiritual life here and now, and uh, we are going to have this, this brand new life with God that is not only an everlasting life with regard to duration, it's not only eternal in terms of never-ending, but it's also eternal in terms of quality. Jesus says in John, the 15th chapter, I have come that they may have life and might have it abundantly. It's not only an eternal life in terms of never-ending duration, it's eternal life in terms of, of quality, a quality of life that is better than anything we will ever have experienced especially as we reflect upon our, our sin-stained existence in this wicked world. We have life eternal in duration and in, in quality. And that, in many respects, begins when we identify with Christ in our baptism. Many think that uh, this little poem that Paul cites in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14, is a baptismal song. It may or may not be, but uh, I like to think of it in, in those terms. As many commentators have pointed out, it, it may well be that as someone in the first century was baptized into Christ, Christians would gather around, just as we often do, and sing a song like, I Surrender All, or something like that. But imagine Christians singing these words as someone comes up out of the waters of baptism. Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
So baptism now saves us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but an appeal or a pledge uh, to God out of a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter says in 1 Peter 3.21. And so we don't have to live in fear anymore. When Jesus was dead and the disciples uh, lived in fear, they hid behind locked doors. They were afraid of what others might do to them. And once he appeared to them, they were bold. They traveled the world. They stood before rulers. They courageously preached a risen Savior. They said things like Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. It's amazing how much courage people have when they finally decide to accept Jesus as a risen Lord. Have you, uh, have any of you as a sports fan ever recorded a big game? Uh, maybe you had to go to church on a Sunday night and go home and watch the end of the Super Bowl, something like that. And then before you watch the remainder of the video, someone spilled the beans and told you who won. And so you knew ahead of time who was going to, to win. Well, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like that. It's our proof positive in advance that we know who the winners and who the losers are going to be. In the meantime, there will be many twists and turns, but we know in advance who wins. We know that we are on the winning team if we belong to Jesus Christ, and we don't have to have any fear any longer. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we read in verses 13 and 14, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, Jesus, God will bring with him, or through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. And in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. I want to live forever. I want to live again after this life is over. I want to live with Jesus. I want to go to heaven. And it's through Jesus that we all can experience that. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. I'd like to close with this passage from John the 11th chapter. Jesus was speaking to Martha. Their brother Lazarus had died. And she has said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. And she, she says, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And then he says to her in John 11, 25 and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
like to close this morning on that question. We don't extend the invitation during these extraordinary times on video conference, but the invitation is extended 24-7 by our faithful God, who sent his son to die for our, our sins on a cross, and he caused his son to be risen from the dead so that we all might have hope through him. But the real question is, as Jesus asked Martha, do you believe this? Do you really? The question we all need to ask and answer for ourselves.